0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Now, if you have uh, your Bibles or right in the front pews, uh, you can turn with me to the book of Genesis. And I'd like to share with you some thoughts from Genesis chapter 22. Rosh Hashanah is the new year. The word Rosh means head or first, and Shana is the year. So Rosh Hashanah is the new year. But in the scripture, we don't find Rosh Hashanah. What we find in the scripture, particularly if you looked at Leviticus chapter 23, you would find seven festivals that God gives to the people of Israel in the Mosaic Law. And among those festivals is what is referred to as the Feast of Trumpets. Now in Leviticus 23, when it makes reference to the Feast of Trumpets, it really doesn't explain much about what this festival is all about. It just says that you are to have a gathering, a convocation where is the blowing of the trumpets. And I've been using the word trumpet, but the word here is shofar, the ram's horn. In the ancient world, the Jewish people used the ram's horn, as you heard, our shofar blowers blow the ram's horn today for a variety of purposes. And in your bulletins, I wrote down for you some of the purposes the rabbis understood with regard to the blowing of the shofar. But in Leviticus, we're not given any explanation as to why we have a gathering for the blowing of shofars. So the rabbis really reflected on the significance of this day, the seventh month of the year in which it is to be celebrated, and they began to reflect on why it might be that we have this convocation, this celebration where we blow the shofar and give praise and glory to God in that sort of context. It's to be a worshipful time, and it was in the temple when it was up and when it was built. And so the rabbis tell us that with the announcing of the shofar as a way that you would announce the coming of a king, and that's why we had a scripture reading about God as king. When we think about God as king, we think about God's creation, for he is the ruler of the universe. He's the master of the universe, as many of the rabbinic prayers tell us. Of course, when we look at the book of Genesis and we remember the creation account, We're reminded that everything that God made was good. After each day it said, and this was made, and it was good. And the evening and the morning was the first day, the second day, and it was good. So we're reminded of the goodness of God. We're reminded of God as creator who makes all things good. We're reminded of God as king, and therefore he is a good king. And as the Lord gives us commandments, we then are to be responsive to them because those commandments are coming from a good monarch, as it were. And so this is one of the themes or a series of themes that is reflected upon when celebrating Rosh Hashanah. Now, when the rabbis thought about the blowing of the shofar or the ram's horn, they were drawn in their thoughts to this episode in Genesis chapter 22. Because in this event, we read of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And in Genesis chapter 22, we're told that sometime later, after the events in chapter 21, most scholars would tell us approximately 25 years have elapsed between chapters 21 and 22. So sometime later, we're talking about 20, 25 years or so later. God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham replied, Hineni, here am I, behold me. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. In verse 3 we read, early the next morning Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the wood, and as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Indeed, the word here is again Hineni. Behold me, here am I. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" the, the rabbi's attention was drawn to it because of the ram that was caught in the thicket by its horn. And since this is the blowing of the ram's horn, it is obvious why the rabbis would think of this passage. Because a, an animal, a ram, was caught in the thicket. And so the rabbis tell us that on Rosh Hashanah, when the shofar is blown and the ram's horn is blown, we're to be reflective and reminded of the faithfulness of Abraham. And that is what raises the whole question of one's relationship with God. It is this issue of faith. The question that always burned in my own heart when reading this passage as a young boy being raised in the synagogue was how was it that Abraham had such a relationship with God that he could hear his voice, knew exactly what God wanted of him, and then found himself obeying him to the very letter of God's command. I have to tell you, growing up and thinking of Abraham and a variety of these biblical characters, they always seemed so different from me. They always seemed that for them they could hear God's voice in a way that I never could. And I went to synagogue on Friday nights and on Saturday mornings, I was in synagogue as a young boy on Tuesday evenings and Thursday evenings for, for Hebrew school. And I was there again on Sunday morning for uh, Sunday school in which we continued whatever we were learning during the week. And yet this burning desire to know God never was really satisfied in the things that I was learning, in the prayers I was reciting, in the messages I would hear from the rabbis, in the liturgy that was being sung. I'm not saying he didn't like those things. I just didn't find a sense of fulfillment in them and I didn't really hear God's voice, at least not the way Abraham did. And then we remember that the whole issue of Abraham is his sense of faith and trust in the living God. Abraham's a unique character in all of Scripture. He's the only character about whom it is said he is the friend of God. It made me think, what does it mean to be a friend of anyone, let alone a friend of God? Being a friend means there's a certain level of intimacy. As you think about the friends in your life, some are very deep and close friends. Others are friends, but they're sort of off in the distance or on the fringes of a relationship with you. But those that you count as close friends are individuals that you've known most likely for a very long time. I don't say that we don't meet people and feel connected almost immediately. We've all had that kind of experience as well. But if a friendship is to grow deep and is to be nurtured, it takes time for it to to develop. It takes a sense of vulnerability where you are sharing one with the other. It takes a level of intimacy, ultimately, To be built and to grow and to be nurtured, it takes trust. Jonathan and David are a great illustration of friendship in which you see all of these elements come together in their own experiences. We see the same thing develop with the disciples and with Yeshua, our Messiah. A deep friendship begins to form and a bonding occurs. Of all the characters in Scripture, Abraham is called the friend of God. And thus, when we understand the sense of friendship, relationship that God or Abraham had with God, then it doesn't become as difficult to understand how Abraham could respond in this way. Now, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is about 125 years old. Isaac is about 20 or 25 years old. Abraham has his son, Isaac, when he is 75 years old. And so Abraham, or at 100 years old, but is promised and develops this relationship with God beginning when he's about 75 years old. Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 12, where this relationship with God begins we find that God speaks to Abraham. And in chapter 12, he says, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. When we look at the end of Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 22, by chapter 25 or so, Abraham will die. But in chapter 22, we read a very similar phrase. He says, take your son, your only son, On one of the mountains, I will tell you about. In other words, when Abraham first heard from God, God had told him to leave his family, God had told him to leave his country, and to go to a place God had not yet specified for him. He told him just to go and I will show you. Now, at the end of his life, he gives him a very similar command. And he tells him, I want you to go to a place I will show you. He doesn't know just now where he's headed. He's told to take his son with him. In chapter 12, he's told to leave his family and to follow God. The amazing thing is Abraham does just that. And the relationship begins to be built. In chapter 12, he leaves. But things are not like they are in chapter 22. When he leaves in chapter 12 and he enters the land that God had showed him, a famine strikes. And when the famine strikes, Abraham leaves the land that God brought him to, the land of Israel, and he goes into Egypt. When he goes into Egypt, he experiences a challenge because Pharaoh eyes his wife, Sarah, and he now desires her. Abraham, in that instance, lies tells Pharaoh that this is his sister. But later, God delivers him from this dilemma. But my point is, his lack of trust in God in Genesis 12 resulted in him sinning against God, you might say, by leaving the land and also being led to lie about his wife, whom he said was his sister. When we get to chapter 22, you don't see these kind of foibles happening in Abraham's life. Why? Because he's now lived with God for some 25 years or so. He's learned over time to trust him. And now at the pinnacle of his walk with the Lord, the Lord now tests Abraham. He's testing Abraham with regard to his love for God, with regard to his friendship with God. And just as we said this evening, when we recited the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what Abraham was being challenged to do. To love God with all of his heart, and therefore to follow him where God would lead him. Though God told him to offer up his son, Abraham knew something about God already that enabled him to take his son. What did he know about God? He already knew that God was a compassionate God, that he was a merciful God because he already spoke to Abraham. He already brought him out of this land of the Chaldeans. He brought him into a land of promise. He also provided for Abraham during the course of his life up to this point. He used Abraham to rescue his his nephew Lot. He brought Abraham in connection with Melchizedek, the priest king of Jerusalem. And he learned of another man who had been walking with God. He had received a promise of a son in his old age. And while at first Abraham did not embrace that promise as such and had a son through Hagar, later he would find that God indeed would be faithful to his promise and provide him a son through Sarah in his old age, when he was 100 and Sarah was 90. He's experienced already God's delivering presence. He's experienced already the compassion that God has had for him. He's experienced already the mercy and grace about which we had sung. Abraham has been experiencing it. And now in chapter 22, he puts all of the pieces together and helps us understand why he was able to do what he did. And it comes out in what he says to those who are traveling with him. He takes his son as God told him to, and God told him to take his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved. Now, you and I know that Isaac was not his only son, for he had a son by the name of Ishmael through Hagar. So when God said, take your only son, the question in our minds is, how can he call Isaac his only son when Abraham had a prior son? But some of that ambiguity is cleared up when we look at the Hebrew text because the word only doesn't mean simply his one and only son, but it means his unique son. The word here only means his son of promise, is the reference to. In other words, it's not Ishmael who's been cast from him already, but it is Isaac, his son of promise. Now, when God provided Isaac to Abraham, God also told Abraham, back in Genesis 17, that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed in Genesis 12. Later in Genesis chapter 17, he's going to tell him that he will have a son and he would multiply his seed, his descendants as the stars in heaven and as the sand on the seashore. Abraham, knowing that God is a God of truth and a God of his word, he knows that Isaac is the son through whom he's going to multiply Abraham's descendants. He doesn't have any other son of promise. It's only Isaac. And he also knows that through that son, not only would he have many descendants, but that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. So Abraham knows God very well because his conclusion is that somehow Isaac must live. Somehow Isaac is going to survive this ordeal. I do not say that this meant that Isaac didn't feel anything emotionally. The text doesn't tell us about that aspect of Abraham's response. No doubt he must have, despite what he knew. But what he knew about God was what was going to drive him to obey God. And he knew that God had told him Isaac was his son of promise. He knew that God had told him that through Isaac he would have many descendants. And he knew through Isaac that all the nations, all the peoples of the world would be greatly blessed. So when he brings his son to the mountain, he tells his servants that I and the boy are going up the mountain. We're going to worship God and we will come back to you. That's what he says in Genesis 22. Now, is that just wishful thinking? I don't think so. I think Abraham knew because of his relationship with God, somehow, he didn't know how, but somehow Isaac must endure this ordeal and so as they move forward and up the mountain and he brought him to a mountain in the region of Moriah later we're told that Solomon would build the temple on Mount Moriah the place where Isaac was being offered up was the same place that Solomon would build the temple The same place where Israel would be worshiping the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same place where sacrifices would be offered up on a regular basis in praise and worship to God. The same place where the Messiah would come and he would be offered up as a sacrifice, as an atonement for our sin. It all hovers around the same place. And the reason all these events hover around the same place is because the central theme of the entirety of God's Word is the coming of the Messiah of Israel. That's what the Scripture is all about. And what Abraham is experiencing is something of a paradigm of what God is going to do to provide the final redemption for all of mankind, for all of humanity. What God would do in order to restore us unto himself. This episode is about how God has won an individual, in this case, Abraham, to himself, in which Abraham exhibits faith and trust in the living God to obey him to the degree to which he did and to experience the full redemption of God's promise to him. Because after he offers up his son and he has, and as I was rereading the passage, he has his son bound. We don't talk too much about Isaac, but imagine this, a 20-year-old or so who has asked the question, here's the wood and the knife. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide it for himself. And Abraham, and Isaac submits himself to being tied up, to being bound, to being placed on the altar. And Abraham taking the knife, raising it in the air and bringing it down. And somewhere in route to kill his son, however it was, whether to raise his, his arm to slice his throat or to stab him, we don't know what, how he would have gone about this process. I don't even know if Abraham knew very well. But in the midst of that, the angel of the Lord, God himself, speaks again. And here the grace and mercy of God comes to the fore And in place of his son, he provides a substitutionary offering and atonement for Abraham. This is a story about an event to illustrate the necessity of faith and trust in what God has provided. That he provides it out of his grace and his compassion and his mercy. And that it is received by faith in him. That's what Abraham, this episode in the life of Abraham illustrates for us and models for us. There's some very unique phrases in this section. As I said, he said, take your only son, but he means his unique son. When we get to the Brit Tadashah, the new covenant scriptures, and when Messiah is spoken of, and usually the, the English translation is only begotten, It is the word that the writers of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, written about 150 years before the time of Messiah, it's the same word they used for Abraham's only son, Isaac. So when we read the only begotten son, which is the English translation, it means the unique son. It's the same word. The writers are telling us, like Isaac, or, I should say, like Isaac was offered, so Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus was offered and did not come down from the altar, but rather was sacrificed and was providing atonement for our sin. Like the ram caught by its horns in the thicket that became a substitute for Isaac, well, Yeshua does not come down and he does offer himself as a substitute for us. Another funny phrase in this passage is that when Isaac asks Abraham, his father, where is the lamb for the offering? The translation says, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And it can be taken in one of two ways. It can be taken to mean the Lord will provide for himself another substitute, which is what he does do. But the text can also be translated, the Lord will provide himself as the lamb. And so it's almost like both ideas are conveyed here. And thus the Messiah about whom Isaac is sort of a foretaste and Abraham, one who places his faith in God, sort of like a foretaste of that substitutionary sacrifice for you and for me. Why do we need this sacrifice? Why do we need this offering? And the reason is because we need to be restored from where we have fallen. This account occurs in Genesis. But if we read earlier in the book of Genesis, we find that God had created man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his own image, in his own likeness. And a few chapters later, and by the way, three times that is made reference to in the early chapters of Genesis. Three times we are told we are creating the image and likeness of God. But when we get to chapter three, we find that the evil one has encroached himself upon God's creation. And the tempter now comes to Eve and says that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not die as God said they would. And indeed, he says, if you eat of that fruit, you will know good and evil, and you will be, he says, like God. The irony of what has just occurred once the fruit is eaten The irony is they already were like God. They already were created in his image. They already were as God wanted them to be. As ones who knew God, who were already like God, they already knew good. But they did not know, experientially, evil. Once they ate of the fruit, and as the evil one says, then you'll know good and evil and you'll become like God. Once they ate of the fruit, they ceased to be like God in the fullness of likeness as God had intended. Now, there's still something of that image that is retained in all human beings, but it is marred. And it is not exactly as it was when God first created us. So by eating of the fruit... We ceased to be like him as we were, and we lost the sense of what is good, and we gained the sense of what is evil. Just the opposite of what God had intended for us from the beginning. So, why is it we needed a Mashiach, an anointed one? Because God is in the business of restoring us to where he had first made us. And that's why when you get to the Brit Hadashah, where believers in Messiah are spoken of as being conformed into the image of Messiah. Why? Because being like Messiah means to be like God, which is how we were initially made, to be like God. What Abraham is doing here is acting as one who would be like God. What is one who is like God? He trusts God. He has a friendship with God. He has a relationship with God. And thus we trust him. When he says not to eat of the fruit, even though we have no idea how that fruit could possibly make us to die, we trust him. And thus we refrain from eating. Similarly, when God calls us to do something as Difficult as what Abraham was called to do, we trust him. And we know that as a compassionate, gracious, merciful God, he'll bring us through whatever the challenge is we are faced with. Abraham illustrates that for us. As he obeyed God to the letter. And his son was restored. And then what happens when we follow God? is the blessings are ever deepened and enlarged. Because when you look at the end of the section, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham from heaven a second time. Now he says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. In other words, the Lord now is making another promise to Abraham, another oath. And because there is no one greater than God, he makes the oath on the basis of himself. And the oath that he makes will be as eternal as the nature upon whom God makes that oath. As God is eternal, so the promise is eternal. Because it is made on him. And so God says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because you have done this, you've exhibited faith and your faith was shown in your following of me, I will surely, indeed, he reiterates this, bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars. But he adds one thing here. He says, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your, enemy, your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. What an amazing statement. The reason why many non-Jewish people have found Yeshua as their Messiah and some Jewish people have, has something to do with this promise made to Abraham. Because you obeyed me, this blessing is gonna go out to the nations of the world and to your own people as well. It makes me think what our own obedience to God, our own sense of faith to God could result in. Is it not possible that if we, in our obedience and in following him and in demonstrating faith, blessings of God would be poured out upon our community and our city and our families and our neighbors? Is there some kind of interconnection that can occur? Certainly for Abraham, it it did, as God has promised. And so my reflection on all of this is that especially as we blow the shofar, we need to reflect on our relationship ultimately with God. It's a relationship that's built on trust, not a blind faith. Kierkegaard spoke about Abraham taking a leap of faith and doing this kind of a thing. But Abraham is not doing anything like that. He's acting on what he knows about the living God. And he knew it through his experiences with him. Fortunately for you and I, We have the word of God that reveals to us what God is like. We have the the events in people's lives and how they exhibited trust and faith in God in hard times and in hard places. Think of individuals like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah willing to go into that fiery furnace in the time of Daniel. Think of the challenges that Moses was faced going to the Pharaoh and having to stand before the most powerful man in all the earth. Think of some of the prophets and the things they struggled with and suffered doing. But they did so because of the great faith they had and because of the great blessing God bestowed upon them and the marvelous compassion and mercy that God exhibits to all. You and I have the record of all of that. And so we have a basis and a foundation upon which we can exercise our trust. And when the Lord sent his son, our Messiah, into our world, as the prophets had said, like these men and women of old, we too might not be able to unravel all the details regarding it. But the prophets were clear about when the Messiah would come, who the Messiah would be, what the Messiah would do. And now, like Abraham, we hear the voice of God tell us these things in his word. And now, like Abraham, the question is, will we exhibit faith and trust in him and follow him and embrace Messiah, who he has sent in our place? Like that ram that was sacrificed in the place of Isaac, so Messiah has come as a sacrifice for our sin that we might be spared and that we might f- receive the fullness of blessings that the Lord has for us. Well, let's pray a moment and then we'll, and we'll have our shofar, uh, Baal shofar, master of the shofar, Gary's going to come and Jerry. And as we listen to the shofar being blown, let's, let's reflect on some of these thoughts and ask ourselves some of those questions regarding our walk with him And our faith in Him. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your goodness and kindness toward us. We pray, O Lord, that our hearts would be softened to your voice. And like Abraham, we, Lord, would respond. And we pray, Lord, that we would exhibit trust in you, knowing, Lord, what you have provided for us. And we are grateful that Messiah has come about whom the scriptures have spoken. And that through faith and trust in him, life eternal has been provided for us. Amen. Jerry. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers.